Welcome to the Accessible Yoga Podcast, your weekly source for questions and answers around equity in yoga, hosted by Jeevana Heyman and Amber Carnes. Join us each week for powerful conversations with thought leaders at the intersection of justice, knowledge, and practice. Welcome to episode 29. I'm your host, Amber Carnes. In this episode, I'm talking with Corey Sterling of Conscious Counsel. Corey is a yoga teacher, practitioner, author, and an attorney, and he's about to answer all your legal questions. Well, most of them. As Corey will tell us in the podcast, law in 2021 means communicating your expectations openly and honestly with heart-leading documents written in plain language. In this episode, we'll talk about things like waivers, intellectual property, insurance, teaching online, LLCs, and much more. Hope this is helpful and practical for y'all. Thanks. Hey, Corey, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me. This is already like a crazy amount of fun. (laughs) Good. Um, So I wanted to start with uh, just having you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, Tell them who you are, what kind of work you do, whatever you'd like to share about um, yourself. Let us get to know you a little bit. My favorite topic to talk about, really. My name's Corey Sterling. Nice to meet everyone. I'm a lawyer with the law firm Conscious Counsel. It's an online law firm that I started four years ago, and we specialize in working with yoga professionals. I used to run a yoga festival in Ontario called Muskoka Yoga Festival. And uh, I'm a certified yoga teacher and I practice yoga quite a bit. And I'm a lawyer as well. And I just found that there was a need in our community to provide fun and relaxed and chilled out legal services to yoga professionals, which is why I started uh, the work that I did. And I also wrote a book called The Yoga Law Book. I just wanted to throw a curveball with the title, like let's confuse people as best as we can with the yoga What's law book. What's that book about? <laughs> yeah, no idea. Um, and yeah, and I live in Brazil. I have a lot of fun. I've got a dog named Gringo. And after this, I'm gonna go for a walk with him on the beach and we'll go swimming and that's what's up. That sounds awesome. Uh, so you live in Brazil. Do you practice law like throughout the world or where are you licensed to, to do that since we have we have global listeners? so. Uh, let folks know where you're coming from. So I, I'm practiced. In, I'm I can call. I'm called to the bar in British Columbia, Canada. I'm Canadian. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, but we have lawyers on our team that are called in various states in the United States, and we've got clients globally, uh, which is cool. The big thing that we teach at Conscious Counsel is that it's really about using legal documents to communicate expectations openly and honestly. And what I found in working with hundreds of yoga professionals is that those who can find a way to communicate the relationship they want to have and be really upfront and honest about what they're looking for, those those types of people will circumvent 99.9% of the legal problems out there. And, and that most of the issues that come up in law is some form of misaligned expectations between people. Mm, I love that. Like it really simplifies things, you know, because I think that um, you know, just from the questions that we are getting from our community members and kind of like, you know, conversations I've had with yoga teachers, it can seem really opaque and like scary to like have contracts or forms and like, are they exactly right? And are you covered? So I'm glad you're here to break it down in a more simple way. Um, I guess like, can we start just talking about what liability do yoga teachers even need to be concerned about, right? Like, is that different state to state? What about outside the U.S.? Difference for yoga therapists? Like, what what are the main kind of categories where you see people run into trouble? 
the the thing to know to to try to keep everything super practical and just for people to be able to understand these concepts there's there's something at law that's called a duty of care and this this exists throughout various jurisdictions it's not just in canada or the united states or in australia or the uk or wherever you are and basically like what i try to do is tell everyone when i explain the law just think about it as like a rational person and not, it doesn't have to be something intense with legislation and blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, here's the deal. You're facilitating an activity for someone. The law says, irregardless of whatever jurisdiction you're in, once you accept the responsibility of providing a service or guiding someone through an activity, you have a responsibility to make sure that that person is going to be safe in you providing that activity for them. So right. it doesn't matter if it's yoga therapy. It doesn't matter if it's yoga nidra. It doesn't matter if it's acro yoga, whatever it is. It's just, this applies to any business in any scenario. When you are facilitating an activity for someone, you are responsible for their well-being. So does that answer your question? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I you know, we got a lot of specific questions and I, I guess um, the, the more general question that I'll ask is, you know, with, um, well, do you recommend that teachers talk to their students or ask about injuries or medical conditions? And I'll explain why I'm asking this question, because I think accessible yoga teachers have sort of a weird line to walk with this, right? Because you talked about that uh, duty of care thing, right? So the yeah. more we know, the more we're liable for, and this is kind of different than a maybe regular sort of group class where the teacher wouldn't even ask about medical conditions or try to provide accommodations and then are not are actually less liable than we would when we're trying to keep folks safe that might be dealing with injuries or illnesses or whatever. And so um, now, like if we know, then we have that duty of care and therefore more yeah. liability. So uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. For sure, I'd love to. Um, a couple of points before I answer. One, I love when people talk about legal concepts and they call like that duty of care thing. It's like, oh, that duty of care thing. It's like, yeah. Oh, that thing. <laughs> yeah, that old thing, um, which always just makes me smile. So <laughs> I hope I hope you're wearing your seatbelt because I'm, I'm throwing like a little bit of, I'm gonna throw you for a loop here, right? So the duty of care is the, the general relationship that you have to take care of somebody while uh, you are facilitating the activity for them. Within each duty of care, there's something co that's called a standard of care. So the standard of care means, you know, uh, what standard that you have to show up to, to reasonably offer the services. And the way that it works with parkues or collecting previous medical information from your clients or from whoever's practicing yoga with you, if you do donation stuff, the more information you know, the higher of standard of care you have. So it's that fine line where uh, I see some yoga professionals who don't want to ask that information beforehand because they're like, oh, well, if I find out about all of your previous injuries and you tell one teacher at the studio, but then not all of the teachers are you know, abreast of that information and something happens like, okay, now we're liable because we fell below the standard. That being said, when we're talking about accessible yoga, um, I think the important things would be to a have the waiver of liability reflect the fact that it's accessible yoga uh, and that you're sharing with everyone um, what activities you're doing, the nature of those activities, the risks, and how that might be different with accessible yoga. And I mm -hmm. think also the, the, the golden rule always is communicate openly and honestly. And I think that even if, if you're a yoga teacher and you're providing you know specific 
accessible yoga services or accessible yoga trainings, um, there will be that latitude with your community that they understand that you're going, you know, you're sort of going above and beyond and that That's it's right. not a standard practice. And so long as you let them know like, hey, we're so excited to support you and we wanna offer this to you and we, we want you to enjoy all the services that we have to offer. Because at law, we have a, a, a higher degree of risk that we're accepting by working with you. You know, the trade-off is that you sign this waiver of liability or that you mm -hmm. won't hold us responsible if something happens. And like, that's it's such a practical example and illustration of what this is really about, where it's like, law is really just two people being upfront and honest with each other and saying, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going out of, not going out of my way, but I'm making special accommodations to work with you because I want you to thrive and I want you to be healthy and happy. And as a result, I need a little bit of something from you in return. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk about waivers. Like, do you think that, you know, do waivers make sense? Do they actually cover the teacher? You know, I've heard from different folks like, well, they don't really work, but you should have one, you know, like if they take you to court. So can you talk a little bit about that? And like in a waiver, what should be covered? Like if folks are going happy to happy happy to answer that a little bit disappointed. You didn't ask about that waiver thing. <laughs> the waiver thing. Yeah. You know, that, I'm that trying to get, uh, you know, the, these legal terms, I'm, uh, I'll get, I'll get down with the lingo. Sometime. No, I, I like, I like waiver. I like waiver thing. I'm just, just so you know, every topic we talk about, I'm going to call it a thing just cause I'm sort of, that's fine. Just, no, I'm, I'm good with it. Okay, perfect. So, um, I wrote this book called the yoga law book. And as I was writing it, I did a lot of research into waivers of liability specifically as applies to health and fitness, um, services and activities. I don't know who started the rumor that waivers of liability don't work, but it's false. The, okay, the, the caveat is that a poorly drafted waiver of liability will not stand up in court, just like any poorly drafted legal document, if you want to rely on it, will not work. So it's sort of like, oh, can cars move? And it's like, yeah, cars can move. If they don't have a motor, the car's not going to move. So I, I swear I'm gonna find that person who's spreading rumors about waivers of liability. Um, the general principle of a waiver of liability is that we know as discussed, um, there's something that's called a duty of care and that the duty of care exists. Now what the waiver of liability does is it's an agreement where so long it's, as it's properly drafted, and I'm gonna speak about that in a moment, so long as it's properly drafted, someone can say, hey, like the law normally says that you have a duty of care to make sure that I'm safe in practicing yoga with you. But because you've communicated all the things that we're doing and what the risks are and what the outcomes of those risks are, and that I'm voluntarily participating and that I'm healthy enough to participate, I'm allowed to release you of that duty or waive you of any liability of what happens to me while I'm in your care. So without the written agreement, the, the legal relationship exists where you have to make sure that that person's going to be safe and taken care of. What the waiver of liability does is it serves as a document so that you are not responsible for anything that happens while that person is in your particular duty of care. That being said, a waiver of liability, so it totally works. It's, uh, it's totally effective. Um, there, from a jurisdiction to jurisdiction basis, there are some small nuances that shift, but the general principle will apply across jurisdictions. Um, and the, the most important thing, and all of the research I did in my book, the most important thing is that the waiver adequately captures what activities you're doing and what the risks of those activities are. So as a general example, if you just write yoga, like, hey, we're gonna be doing yoga together, and you might get injured, and so you release me of any liability. But then let's say you do something like you introduce aerial yoga, 
or you introduce acro yoga, or you're doing chair yoga, or whatever type of yoga it is that you're doing. You want to make sure that the waiver of liability accurately covers what specific aspects of yoga you're doing and what the associated risks of that are. Because just so you know, and like I've been on both sides of the fence in the sense that I've been hired by people who have gotten injured in yoga classes. I've been hired to challenge a waiver of liability. And 95% of the time I get hired to draft waivers of liability. So I know what both sides are looking for. And an example of where something would not stand is if I'm doing, you know, you're offering prenatal yoga, but the waiver of liability doesn't mention anything about prenatal whatsoever. That person, if they get injured or something, God forbid, if something happens and they want to hold you responsible because they were in your care and you didn't, you know, properly instruct them something for prenatal, they're going to say, sure, I signed this yoga waiver of liability, but it didn't say anything about the specific thing that we were doing together. And as such, it would not cover you for that activity. Does that make sense? Yeah, it really does. Um, so, uh, I, you know, one of probably the most popular questions that we got was about different kinds of waivers for different situations, right? So now we have in-person classes, some of us around the world are having, uh, online teaching, like live teaching. We have recorded content. We've got private lessons in a person's home. So are there different um, requirements, especially for online content? It sounds like with the in-person stuff, it's pretty straightforward, like list the activities, list the risk. But what about online content? Should we have a disclaimer before recorded stuff? What should it say? Okay, so I'm going to break that down to a couple of things. Um, one thing is when we're talking about online versus in-person, ideally you want one document that's going to cover you for everything. One properly okay. professionally drafted agreement that covers you for all of it. So it's like you sign it, you get your clients to sign it once and then one and once and done, it's over. You don't need to revisit it. The only time, and just as a side note, the only time that you'll need to modify or get people to re-sign a waiver is if the activities that you're doing are different. Mm -hmm. So, so long as you're doing the same activities in the same way, which is why you want it broadly drafted to cover, you know, online, in-person, COVID, whatever. Just the one thing about doing the thing in person is like COVID needs to be included as part of the act. Like the activity is that you're now practicing yoga in an environment where there's a communicable disease and what the mm -hmm. risks of those diseases are and what happens if that uh, risk materializes. So I, I don't want to belittle or minimize that and I want to make sure to state it. Um, yeah. And the other answer to your question is yes. Remember, waivers are always about what activity are we doing and what are the risks of those activities. Having evergreen content in the form of a media library that people can access whenever they want, them doing yoga with a video of you is very different from them doing yoga in your, in your physical space where you can make sure the, safest spa uh, the space is safe, where you can watch them doing the postures, where you can make sure that you know everything is safe and they're not doing anything wrong. So the waiver of liability needs to cover things like either Zoom classes where the teacher A is not able to uh, observe the space that the, the student is in, or like if the student is doing something wrong and is at risk of injuring themselves, evergreen content where no one's there and it's just a recorded video, as well as in person. And then the last part to answer your question is between the waiver of liability is always the gold standard. As I've explained, a waiver of liability is a signed agreement where someone is forfeiting their legal rights to bring an action against you based on something that took place while you were in their care, while they were in your care. 
a disclaimer is like it's not binding no one is no one's signing a disclaimer it's a disclaimer is used for like for a situation where you're not able to oversee or um you 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 don't know who's practicing with you so if i'm doing an instagram live i'm doing facebook live or i have like a free channel where anyone can sign up and tune in at any time that's when you would want to link it with a disclaimer but it's not nearly as potent as a waiver of liability because it's not binding upon whoever's participating. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what is your recommendation for folks who have like a YouTube channel or do those Facebook lives? Like, is the disclaimer the best we can do? Or is there some other thing? You know, I think about somebody like uh, Yoga with Adrian, who has like millions of followers on her YouTube account, like, uh, you know, what what would be the best um, sort of protection for that type of you know public content? Is it just uh, the disclaimer or something else? Yeah, it's ideally in a situation you want to think about how can you get as many people as possible to sign the waiver of liability. That's what I would say. But if you're in a situation like I'm sure Yoga with Adrian um, has some form of disclaimer that's put on on YouTube, and like one document that we draft specifically is YouTube disclaimers. Um, so that's that's an example where it's sort of like the best thing that you can do if you can't control yeah. who's accessing the content is that. And the way that I always coach clients to think about it, it's like, think about it when it used to be when everyone had a studio and there was the front desk where people had to come in. If people are coming into your studio and they're quote unquote entering the front desk, they sign the waiver of liability. But if people are standing on the street and looking into the class and practicing from the street, like obviously you can't get them to sign something. So the disclaimer is the best you can do. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, so since we're talking about waivers and that kind of stuff, um, could you talk a little bit about the liability around hands-on assists? I would say maybe like COVID aside, do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. You know, you, you spoke about the risks of COVID and making sure that that's in the um, disclaimer, but what about hands-on assists generally? Yeah, hands-on assists generally, non-COVID related, it comes down to consent, right? And which is a real thing, and and I've I've been at yoga festivals before where they sell cards where you let yeah. the you know students can choose or the beginning of class everyone will have you know be in some sort of some sort of asana and you know raise a leg if you don't want to be touched or if you do want to be touched. The issue that you can run into is you know um, un you know non consensual touching, right. um, especially if you're a studio owner and and you don't have a firm policy that's evidenced in writing or proof that you explain to your teachers how they're supposed to act. So the legal issue has to do with consensual touching. It's, it's very straightforward. Um, you should only be touching someone if you have express written consent. I have some clients who included in the waiver of liability will you know, put in something that, you know, I agree to being, you know, touched in a reasonable manner for adjustments in my yoga practice. I have other clients who do not want that included mm -hmm. and they would rather deal with it on a, on a base by base basis. So like it's, there's not a, a, a panacea or a one way of doing things. I think a, it's a philosophical approach for each teacher of what they, what they deem is important. But the issue that you want to be really, really careful of is, yeah, you, you don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. You don't want mm -hmm. anyone to feel that they're being taken advantage of or that they feel uncomfortable in a yoga class. So the most important thing to do is A, have a written policy, B, communicate it with your staff and with your clients, uh, with whoever's practicing with you, and C, do everything you can to make sure that it's properly enforced. 
That's great. Thank you. Yeah. And I'll just reiterate, you know, we talk a lot about consent and agency and stuff like that um, with our teachers. And I'll just reiterate that having a consent policy and not just a policy for the studio, but really making like a culture of consent, like part of your classroom norms doesn't just protect the students like it protects us as teachers, too. Like that's what we're talking about today. You know, so those clear communications, I think, are so important. And so. Um, we'll link to some resources in the show notes about um, consent and some uh, that particularly apply to, to this issue. And um, sorry, I, there's just one small yeah. thing that I want to add on that. One thing I always encourage clients to do is when you're dealing, especially like this really was birthed when it came to COVID safety protocols. But I think with consent, it's really important as well. Because we're doing everything on Zoom or we're doing so many things on Zoom these days, it never hurts to have a staff training and record the video so that in the event you have a teacher who acts outside of the policies, it, it always comes down to reasonableness and what you're able to prove at law. And I think if, if one of your students is complaining that they were inappropriately touched or they don't feel comfortable by a teacher, having the ability to show them that video and say, hey, this is something that we take super seriously. And yeah. here's an example of what we said to all of our staff. And I'm, you know, I'm sorry this staff member acted out of turn. That goes a, a long way in just showing people that you really care and, and what lengths you go to for them. Yeah. You know, that reminds me of something I'd love to talk about, which is how do you advise folks to, um, what do you advise folks to do? Like if a conflict like that were to come up, do you know what I mean? Cause I know that you're, you started talking about how, uh, these legal agreements are really just really clear communication ahead of time to prevent issues. So what happens when the issue comes up? Like what, what can folks, what should folks do? The first thing that folks should do is have really good agreements in place and I'll, and I'll explain mm -hmm. to you why from any time that i've been hired either defending a client or someone has hired me to commence an action against another party it always works the same way there's always some form of complaints so someone got injured someone's dissatisfied someone was taken advantage of someone feels discriminated against whatever it is and either that person will themselves send an email or that person will hire a lawyer to send a demand letter, what's called a demand letter. Now, what I say at law is it doesn't matter, it doesn't really matter what happens, it always matters what you're able to prove, which is why having legal agreements is so important. So in the event that you, someone's making an allegation, they got injured, they were doing a headstand, that's what happened, okay? Let's, we'll just leave it at that. When you have a really good waiver of liability, you can show the date and the time that it was agreed to, you have all of it accessible uh, that, that you can use for support. All you really have to do is take a screenshot of the particular part that says like, activities will include inversions and handstands. Right. And then take another screenshot of this, the part that says, you know, I release you of all liability for anything related to the activities. And like, and that the story ends there. And like most of the time that I'm called into action to support clients, it's in that sort of role. Actually, mm -hmm. it, mo it happens most frequently on teacher trainings and retreats if they want to kick someone out. Like, hey, these were the expectations right. of work of coming to our yoga teacher training. You were not going to drink alcohol. You were going to show up on time. You weren't going to make any offensive remarks. Whatever someone does that, you're out. No refund. Here's the agreement. Yep. The problem is when you don't have those agreements in place you're not able to resolve the problem in the same expediency or with the same force. And that's when it's like, if you're struggling to find the waiver of liability, you're like, where did it go? But it's not, you, it's not there. Then the other side will be like, oh, okay, well, 
you, you know, you did not show us any evidence that there was a signed waiver of liability as such, you know, we're commencing our claim for $35,000 for whatever reasons. And then like, you're going to settle at $20,000. Like nobody wants to do that. And, and in the same way, let's say you, you're running a yoga teacher training and you don't have a yoga teacher training agreement, right? You want to kick someone out. They're acting irresponsibly. They're going to say, well, like I never signed anything that said that, that gave you that right to ask me to leave if I act in, in what you deem as an offensive manner. So no, mm -hmm. I'm staying or give me a full refund. And it's like, it's just that difference of something growing and becoming a problem because you don't have the legal support around it or just being able to resolve it in one email. Yeah, thank you. That's great. Okay, um, let's talk about insurance. Uh, a lot of folks ask like, what kind of insurance is recommended, if any? Um, is there something extra they need for like online teaching? Um, Let's chat about that a little bit. Cool. Firstly, I I love how law and insurance are linked because like I have Oh, no they ask about taxes too. So uh, no, <laughs> I know that's not, not your jurisdiction. Uh, so we're not no. going to talk about that. Taxes I don't, but but with insurance, um, there's an awesome company that we work with that's called B Yogi. Um, and if you mention Conscious Counsel and you reach out to them, uh, you get a 15% discount. We get zero. I don't get any kickback whatsoever. We just, all of our clients have wonderful experiences working with B-Yogi. Um, there's also a really fun game that I, that I teach clients how to play just cause like I generally love games myself. So this game is like, it's called cook your cook or prepare your favorite snack in the world. Is that a, is that a good start? I'll play. Let's do it. <laughs> okay, cool. So for me, it's like, I've got my popcorn going. I'm feeling good. I love popcorn. I can eat popcorn any 24 hours a day. And I get my favorite snack and then I get ready to call my insurance provider or whoever my insurance broker is. And before I call them, I'm eating my popcorn. I'm in my happy place. I'm feeling really good. And I just write down on a piece of paper, all of the activities that I do and all of the different ways that I offer those activities. So I do tree yoga, I do lake yoga, I do beach yoga, I do dog yoga, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Right. Then I'm gonna speak to my insurance broker. If I already have my policy, I'm gonna say, hey, it's me, Corey, your favorite client. I'm here eating popcorn. <laughs> and I just wanna make sure that I am covered for all of the activities that I do. So can you please confirm that I'm covered for, and then you just read off that list, you're eating popcorn, you're happy, it's great they will answer these questions because they have to answer these questions. Also, if you call B Yogi and you ask these questions and they wanna sell you a policy, they will be way more excited to answer that because for them, there's a sale at the end of the tunnel where they're like, okay, like I'll deal with this person who's eating popcorn and, um, <laughs> and answer all of their questions because it will result in a sale for me. And like, that's the insurance game. All right, perfect, thank you. Um, Folks want to know, do I need an LLC to be protected? And then does the LLC get separate insurance? Uh, are there reasons to get an LLC or to form an LLC if you're a sole proprietor? Can you chat about that a little bit? I can. I was hoping you were going to call the it LLC that LLC thing. Sorry, yeah. I forgot. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have one of those LLC things, so, you know. <laughs> I love, I love a good LLC thing. Okay. So I, the, before I answer that question, and firstly, these are all awesome questions because these are all like, these are the core questions that we always get. So I'm happy that like okay. the community is engaged and is knowing what to ask. The, the first thing about L that LLC thing 
is that the biggest misconception that people have is that their business is quote unquote more professional if they have an LLC or not. Well, they'll be like, oh, well, like I want to be a real business, so I'm going to register an LLC. And I'm just, and I again, I don't know who propels these ideas, and I get how it feels more professional if you have an LLC, but um, but really, you can be a, a super successful professional uh, yoga business operating as a sole proprietor, or you know, in in any other sort of legal structure. The legal structure doesn't define you or your business or your professionalism. That being said, just to understand uh, the benefits of an LLC and how it works, the LLC is the creation of a separate legal entity. So uh, what happens is when you operate as a sole proprietor, I'm at, let's say I'm, I'm doing popcorn yoga um, that's run by Corey Sterling and it's not an LLC and I'm a, I register uh, in my state as a sole proprietor. All of the relationships that I enter into as Popcorn Yoga um, are going to be me personally. So if I've got if I if I'm entering into a relationship with students, that's Corey and the students. If I'm signing a lease with the landlord, it's Corey and the landlord. If I am doing a teacher training with two other people, it's Corey and the two other people who I'm working with. What happens is because I'm operating as myself in those relationships my personal assets are liable. So there's no separation of popcorn yoga and Corey Sterling, whatever assets I may have. The risk of not registering an LLC is that in the event that your business is growing or the nature of your business is particular um, risky or you have a high exposure to risk in what you're doing, i.e. acro yoga, aerial yoga, or whatever else it is, um, my personal assets can be liable if popcorn yoga gets into trouble or something happens to Popcorn Yoga. Conversely, let's say I register an LLC that's called Popcorn Yoga LLC. Now that LLC at law is a separate legal entity. It's something completely different than me, Corey Sterling personally, and all of the relationships that I enter into are that of Popcorn Yoga LLC. So the relationship with my students, it's the LLC that enter, enters. With the landlord, it's the LLC. In the same vein, now Corey Sterling and Popcorn Yoga LLC are two separate legal entities and there's no reason why they should be linked. So the, the extent of the liability for Popcorn Yoga LLC is only that to which of assets belong to the LLC. Corey Sterling personally is completely blocked off. At law, it's called the corporate shield. And that's the benefit of someone registering an LLC. So um, the, the three biggest factors that I walk through with clients and coming to this decision, the first is, okay, do I have personal assets? And if you have personal assets in the form of a car or a really good portfolio or property or livestock, I spoke with someone yesterday who had this, uh, this whole, a whole bunch of cows basically, which really is worth a lot of money. It makes sense to register the LLC just so that you're covered that even if something happens unforeseeable, you've got insurance, you've got legal documents, none of your personal assets are available. So one factor that would be decided would be if you have assets. Number two is from a tax perspective, um, work with an accountant to come to this decision, but it could be that your business hopefully is earning enough that it makes sense for you to register an LLC, um, in which case it makes sense to do for those purposes. And the, th the third would just be the general nature of what you're doing and how exposed to risk you are. One of the first clients that I had ran a heli skiing company 
at the top of Whistler Mountain in British Columbia. And that was like, it wasn't even part of the conversation of whether or not they're registering a company. It's like, okay, this is so risky what you're doing. Let's just, let's just get you registered. So I hope that answers the questions. No, that's perfect. Um, are there other legal entities that you'd also recommend folks look into, like, you know, incorporating or that kind of stuff? This is where your accountant really comes in more more than anything else because you, there's an S corp, there's LLC. You can incorporate. You can be in a partnership. Um, the only like the only thing that I'll touch on is that partnerships can be tricky just because in a partnership it's shared assets, shared liabilities. So you have to understand that it's like you're getting business married to someone. So make right. sure obviously that you want to be business married to them. Um, but other than that, the other decisions usually will come to tax purposes. I, do, I spoke, I worked with a client yesterday who's starting a nonprofit and was doing actually most of the legwork on their own for that. Mm -hmm. So uh, is the correct order, you know, if I'm thinking about starting a business entity for what I'm doing, first talk to my accountant, then hire a lawyer. Is that the right order? Yeah, sure. That, that makes sense. And, and I think it's, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. Okay, cool. Um, let's talk about contracts a little bit. So like for, especially for teachers that are maybe going to teach at a studio that they're not an owner of, or go be a faculty at someone's teacher training. Like, are there any sort of, um, red flags or like must haves when it comes specifically to yoga? Um, that just anything that teachers need to be aware of, or like red flags that you've seen, uh, folks yeah. struggle with. I, I think probably one of the biggest areas of opportunity would be around making sure that you have a dis have a discussion before, right? And like the thing that sucks about most agreements out there, I call them agreements, not contracts, BTW, okay. just that whole agreement thing, because it's two people <laughs> agreeing on something. And I feel like, yeah, contracts just so passe, really. Um, yeah. But, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, I, I think what's most important is think about what you need in the relationship before you get into it and make sure that you communicate it. One of the biggest issues that I've seen with teachers has been around intellectual property. So that's if you're working for somebody else and they're recording videos of you that they're putting for evergreen content, how does the revenue profit share look for that particular relationship? Has all of that been discussed? Who owns the property? Um, I've seen non-competes and non-solicitations also like a lot of issues and inquiries uh, around that just because now every, you know, every teacher basically can run their own Instagram live and studios are like freaking out about them taking clients. Um, uh, the, the other thing is like also when it comes to things like being a faculty for teacher training, again, intellectual property and who owns what and what are, exactly are you paying me for and what does that entitle you to? Um, and yeah, I, I think generally speaking, that's probably it. The, the biggest one usually for teachers is, am I a contractor or an employee? And on the teacher side, it's like, do you understand the, the difference between what those both of those mean? Because what I, what I saw a lot of was, teachers who uh, felt that they were entitled to unemployment insurance as the whole COVID thing happened, but they were technically classified as being contractors. So then they were not allowed to, but then when they really looked at the relationship, they were being, being treated as an employee. Um, so I think th there's always sort of something that needs to be organized in, in that particular relationship. Does, does all that make sense? 
It does. I was wondering if you can expand a little bit on what the like the legal difference is between employees and contractors, because we did get some questions about that and folks aren't sure which they are, which they should be. Okay, so the first thing to know is this, it is a jurisdictional question more than it is anything else. And like by, for an example, uh, I have a new client who signed up last week in Connecticut who wanted all of the teachers to be contractors. Connecticut is a state similar to California where they have something called the ABC test, where to make it as simple as possible, if the service being provided by the person who's working for you is carrying out a service that is the main function of your business, at law, that person is an employee and not a contractor. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, on a jurisdiction to jurisdiction basis, it will change whether or not someone is a contractor or an employee. The trend is more and more that if someone, a yoga teacher working for a yoga studio is an employee, that's like the general trend of the direction that all of these states are going in. Um, that being said, there are other states where that's not the test. And in that case, it always comes down to what's called the control test and the degree of control that the person who's paying the worker has over the way the services are being done. So if you're like, because the whole idea is a contractor runs their own business that should be totally separate from your business. So I'm a law firm, we have an office, there's a plumber who comes in, that plumber's a contractor, they're using their own equipment, they they come at their own time, they invoice me only for work that's done, it's not like a fixed retainer fee or whatever. Um, The more work they do, the more they get paid. Um, and that you just want to think about a contractor as being someone who runs their own business, but it, it will always come down to like things like invoicing, scheduling, um, control over the way the services are performed. If you're at a yoga studio and they're like, hey, we always do Ashtanga yoga in this particular way, A, B, C, D, E, F, and like, oh, you didn't put a towel on someone's face at the end of it, you know, you're reprimanded for that. Like that's full control. You're telling someone how to do the job. In that case, someone would be an employee. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Okay. Um, let's go back to intellectual property. Cause we did have some questions about that, like copyright trademark, you know, what happens if, you know, well, I'll just give an example from my own teaching that I've, you know, dealt with in the past. Uh, body positive yoga is the LLC thing that I own. (laughs) And I've been teaching under that name since like 2010. And now body positive yoga has sort of become a, a, a category of yoga. And so many, many people use this name that was like my name and my thing. So uh, I know other teachers that have ran into this and they're not really sure what to do. Like, do they need to get a trademark? Should they just send an email? Is this when it's like, we hire a lawyer to do a cease and desist letter. Can you just talk about that a little bit, the IP issues that come up? Definitely. And I'm just looking through the US Patent and Trademark Office for body positive yoga. I'm not registered as a trademark because someone owns a trademark for some for body positive. And um, I spoke with a lawyer who told me that it would be too hard to get it approved because the categories were really similar for that trademark. But let's say you do own the trademark, um, then what's your, then, then what's your recourse? Or do you, do you recommend that people get the trademark in the first place? Okay. So I'm, I'll tell you, I'll do, we'll do a crash course. And now it's actually interesting because I, I'm sort of like such a nerd about these things that I just <laughs> briefly went down a rabbit hole of trying to, <laughs> trying we to can talk about that. Okay, cool. So I, I would really say, I, I think, 
the the second half of 2020 we saw a, like a very sharp increase in registration of trademarks for with our clients and i think that's because we see more and more people practicing online and the right. accessibility and eyeballs that are on your particular business mark are more important than ever and i and i have like one of those crazy weeks that like this is the exciting the pulse of being a yoga lawyer like this is i'm going to tell you and you're just like wow corey this is you probably dreamed of this, um, which I, I did. I don't dream of of resolving these issues, but I I want to make an impact in the industry to help people be protected. So, yeah. what happens is this is how trademark this is how trademark works. Trademark is registration either of a name or a series of words or a logo or a logo with words. And what happens is you register it with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office or the Canadian Intellectual Property Office or in Australia with the Australian uh, trademark office, or in in Europe with the EU, whatever, wherever you are. And what it does is it lets the world know that the, the, the general public associates the goods and services that you sell and offer and have been selling and offering with that particular mark that you have in your industry. So that's the, the, the bet and the benefit of registering a trademark is that you now have exclusive use, which means you are the only one who is allowed to use it in your particular field and industry for whatever goods and services. But you also have enforceable rights, which means that if someone else is using it, you can enforce your rights to rights to have that person stop. And also in the event that you grow and you one day wanna license out the materials, you have a registered trademark either for your business or for a teaching manual or whatever it is. And because that's registered and you have the benefit of exclusive use and enforceable rights, and it has goodwill, like it's an investment in the business. Now, right. the, the week that I'm talking about is I had three instances like back to back to back of client. Okay. So hold on. I'm going to tell you that juicy story in one second, but the thing that everyone needs to know about trademark laws is, it all comes down to how how good of priority you have in your mark. So the general rule is let's assume nobody registers a trademark. Whoever's been using it for the longest period of time in commerce and can show that they've been using it for the longest period of time in commerce has the best has the best priority. It's like top, right? But once someone takes the effort to register their mark with the government at law that person leapfrogs anyone who did not register and then has better priority because they've registered and governments want to encourage people to say, Hey, if you've got your business name and you're actually using it, like go ahead and register so that everyone knows that this is yours. So three times in a week, the issue I ran into was clients who had been using a business name or mark for longer than someone else never registered a trademark someone else is using it for a shorter period of time that they didn't know about that person registers and then sends them a cease and desist letter to say hey like <laughs> right. look at us we've got this trademark and you don't therefore you have to stop now when that happens just so you know you are as a business you are allowed to challenge the registration and one of the challenges that you could make is actually we've been using this longer than you but it's an uphill climb and the longer that you wait and the further a trademark application goes through the registration process the more expensive and challenging and stressful it is to actually stop the other registration plus at that point you're they're, they're going to make you register your own if you're going through that whole problem of challenging someone else's it's sort mm -hmm. of like 
if, if you've got a mark and you're going to use it and you're growing your business around it, like just register the trademark. Sounds great. Okay. So, um, one more kind of hyper specific question, but we did get this one a lot that, uh, you know, whoever's spreading the rumors that the waivers don't work probably started this one too, that, uh, there's, there's a difference between charging by donation and like charging a price. Like you can kind of like, is there, is there a legal difference? And um, if not, a lot of folks that we work with, you know, do accept accessible pricing or by donation. Is there anything implied by pricing that folks need to know about legally? Not really. And the only difference would be the standard of care, but the duty of care exists nonetheless. So duty of care has set categories that it does. The category isn't like, oh, paid instruction versus instruction. It's like the same with an Instagram live. You're responsible if you're just putting content out there for free to whoever you're responsible. So to directly answer that, there still is a duty of care, even if you're offering your services for free, because remember you are facilitating an activity for someone and legally you have a responsibility to make sure that they're going to be safe. An argument could be made in your defense that your standard of care was lower because you were not charging, but that doesn't nullify the existence of the duty of care relationship. Totally makes sense. Thank you. Corey, this is like, I feel like we got through a, all the questions, which I didn't expect to. And this was just so helpful and practical. I know folks are going to love to listen to this conversation. So thank you. Um, I would love for you to talk about uh, if folks want to work with you, um, how they could work with you, what sort of services you provide. Um, and we'll, of course, link to your book and your site and all of that. But if folks want help drafting a waiver or a disclaimer, any of the things you talked about, can you just let folks know what all what services you offer if you want to and, and how they can work with you if they're interested? Sure. The, the best way will just to be to connect with us. And I'm sure our e like an email address, my email address will be included in the show notes. You can shoot us a note on Instagram or you can find us on Facebook. We send out weekly newsletters and videos where I just do like a chat about whatever's going on. So if you want to follow us in that way, that's cool. In terms of what we draft, usually the way it works is um, we'll have a consultation with a client who will tell us a little bit about their business. Um, the, the standard package that we sell is a waiver of liability, a client service agreement, and then privacy policy terms of service and uh, social media disclaimer. But if you, if you run retreats, we help with retreat agreements and retreat waivers. If you run a teacher training, we have teacher training agreements and teacher training waivers. Um, we've got online course agreements. We've got workshop agreements. It's like it, it, we have agreements for all of the different types of relationships that yoga professionals have. So feel free just to reach out, shoot me a note. I hope the, you know, the information was helpful and we'll hop on a call and you can tell me what you're up to and we can find a way to work together. All right. Sounds perfect. Um, anything you want to leave our, our folks with or anything you're working on, you're excited about, you want to talk about? I, anything. Any I, advice no, you want to leave folks with? Parting gift. What do you got? <laughs> no. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm working on, on work. So, um, yeah, no, I, th what I would say is I would say, look, don't underestimate the need of, of having appropriate legal documents in place. Uh, it brings me great joy to offer the services that I do just because I know how much it actually helps people. And it's one of those things that like, you can go a year, you can go a year and a half, you can go two years without something happening, but just have the documents in place in the event that you need to rely on them. It's sort of like a seatbelt, like 
you don't know when you're going to need a seatbelt until you do. And then it can really, really, it obviously saves your life or really helps you. And like, I see legal documents as, as being that help for um, yoga professionals. I will just say specifically, um, offering accessible yoga, I think is, is really, really wonderful. And the more that uh, the world twists and turns in all of its different ways, the more there's a need for us to offer yoga to everyone who needs it. And I would say the one thing I would say is don't un underestimate the value that you provide to your yoga students and people who really need it. Because I know from my personal experiences, there have been so many instances where like I was in a bad mood, things weren't going right, whatever. And like a yoga class changed my life. And I think it applies to accessible yoga and it applies to all yoga. So just keep doing everything that you're doing and, and serve with love and be wonderful for the people around you and have fun because life is short. Thank you so much, Corey. This has been awesome. I appreciate your time and uh, tell folks uh, your website so they can check you out and make sure you go over to the show notes because we've got links to Corey's book and a bunch of other stuff too. Cool. I, I also just want to thank you for this whole podcast thing. Yeah, like just as, the whole as thing. thing. As a thing, it was just very <laughs> thingy. Um, our websites are yogalegal.com and consciouscouncil.ca. But all of all of those will be linked. You can look up the Yoga Law book, whatever you want. I'm, I'm here to support everyone. Perfect. Thanks so much, Corey. Okay, cool. This was fun. Ciao. Thank you for joining us for another week of the Accessible Yoga Podcast. I am Kelly Nicole Palmer, a Black queer writer, artist, and community advocate. I serve as the editor for the Accessible Yoga Podcast and a staff member for the Accessible Yoga Nonprofit. I'm a teacher trainer, a yoga teacher, and I have my own nonprofit based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Race equity work is an important part of what I do on and off of the yoga mat. I want to make the world safer for folks who hold underestimated and under-resourced identities. I want to make it safer to enter wellness spaces and also to just exist in a world still upholding systems of oppression. The shift in our world and wellness spaces is getting stronger and stronger, asking each of us to lean in. I'm excited to announce that a new cohort is forming for my course, Race and Equity, Disruption as a Practice. The next section of this 12-hour live training will run from February 24th until March 5th, 2021. If you've been thinking about engaging with this work, we have a live info session with me on February 17th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Get clear on your role in dismantling white supremacy and activate your yoga practice for social justice. Together, we can begin working towards the future we believe in. As a participant in this course, you will be invited to investigate how you participate in and uphold systems of oppression. I'll ask you to awaken to how racism and white supremacy show up in your yoga communities so that you can shift your perspective and work towards change. In the end, it is my intention that you feel empowered to shift how you show up in wellness spaces and be an activist and ally for others. Join the waitlist now at AccessibleYogaTraining.com. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. You can also suggest a topic, ask a question of Amber or Chivana, or recommend a guest that you'd like for us to interview at AccessibleYogaTraining.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.